0: And I encourage you to turn in your Bibles to Mark 14, and we'll be beginning at verse 32. Last night you were thinking about the upper room and that event which happened earlier on the Thursday evening. and now we're moving forward to think about Gethsemane. I'm actually moving backwards. I was in St. Colmenes last night, and I was asked to speak about the betrayal of Jesus and the arrest, so I'm moving backwards. It's a bit confusing today, actually, doing that. Now, it was the custom of Jesus to go with his disciples each evening out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, this was a place just outside of Jerusalem, just the right-hand side of the map there. It's at the side of the Mount of Olives. The name Gethsemane means a wine press, so obviously that was a wine press. Certainly, at one time it might have still been in Jesus' death, but obviously it was a quiet place that Jesus and his disciples could go to at night in order to be alone, in order to pray, when Jerusalem was so busy and the hustle and bustle coming up the Passover time. Here was a place of solace for them. Now Jesus knew what Judas was planning to do. There was no surprises. For Jesus in that and he knew that Judas would know all about Gethsemane and that Jesus would be there with his disciples and he knew that Judas would understand this is a good place a quiet place in order for Jesus to be arrested but Jesus was not going to hide away he was not going to try and avoid this he was ready to be arrested he was ready to go through that process which would end in his death but I think there's another point here Even though he was going to be arrested, even though he was going to start that process that would end on the cross, he wasn't going to deviate from his regular practice of spending time in prayer in this quiet place. Prayer was so important to him that even the prospect of death was not going to get him to deviate from his plan. Now, as they come into Gethsemane, Jesus got the majority of the disciples, that would have been eight of them, to stay in one place, while he went a little bit further with his three closest companions, Peter, James, and John. This was such a crucial time for Jesus, and he really needed this fellowship and this companionship. Now, as we look what happens here, the first point I want us to think about tonight is the distress of Jesus, beginning there in verse 33. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. Think of that first phrase, he began to be deeply distressed. If you have a King James version in front of you, it translates it: he was sore amazed. This describes a great emotional shock, the sort of shock that causes you to freeze, to to go numb. The word used here to describe that is used in Mark 16 to describe the reaction of the women at the tomb when they saw the angel there. It's a word which means you're alarmed, you're startled, you're even horror-stricken. So he was going in a state of shock. Next it says he was troubled. If you have the King James, it translates it very heavy. This carries a sense of being crushed, of being under pressure, of being deeply depressed, of being weighed down, of being dejected. So Mark is describing here a mixture of shock and heaviness upon his soul. Then we read in verse 34. And he said that my soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. My soul is sorrowful even to death. The word sorrowful here means... Grief all over him. Grief was consuming him. Jesus is saying that he's been so overtaken by a sense of grief, it is nearly killing him. Sorrow to death. Now, why was Jesus experiencing this shocking, this crushing sense of anguish and grief at this moment? What was happening here? Now, obviously, he was thinking about the cross, which he speaks here about the cup that was before him. But throughout his ministry, throughout his life, the cross was always before him. He, he mentioned it many times that he was going to go to the cross. And think of how he told them he was going to go and die, and Peter tried to stop him, and he said, get behind me, see So he knew the cross was before him. Yes, the closeness of the cross was a, a factor here in deepening that sense of anguish, but that doesn't give us the full answer here into the, that state of shock and heaviness and grief that Jesus was going through. Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian of the 1700s of America, although Sinclair Ferguson teases the Americans to say he was the greatest British theologian because it was pre the revolution in America and that. But this is the way he puts it, and this is absolutely amazing. takes us into the depths of what is happening here. He had then a near view of that furnace of wrath into which he was to be cast. He was brought to the mouth of the furnace that he might look into it and stand and view its raging flames and see the glowings of its heat, that he might know where he was going and what he was about to suffer. So the furnace of wrath that he was going to experience the next day, he was brought to a point supernaturally that he had a clear vision of what he was going to experience the next day. And the purpose of this was that so that he would be a willing sacrifice, that he would go to the cross fully understanding what it would cost him. He would willingly go with open eyes to what he was going to experience. Jesus recoiled at this vision. And he cries out, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So his natural response to this vision of what he was going to endure was, Father, take this away from me. Father, rescue me from this. Now, why was the cross causing him such anguish? Many other people before him had gone to the cross bravely, and many others after him went and died on a cross without this anguish that Jesus was going through. We think of Peter. When he was going to be crucified, tradition tells us that he didn't want to be crucified like Jesus because he felt he wasn't worthy of that, and so he was crucified on a cross upside down. He didn't have this anguish that Jesus had. The difference was that for Jesus, the physical pain of the cross, the torture that went before that in his trial, that would only be a small part of his suffering. The greater anguish would be Jesus entering into the furnace of God's wrath. When that darkness would come over the land the next day, God's wrath would fall upon his soul when he who had no sin became sin to save his people. Jesus on the cross would experience the infinite, the immeasurable wrath of God. On the cross, Jesus experienced great physical pain. On the cross, Jesus experienced the darkness and on the cross he experienced the wrath of God on his soul Jesus on the cross was experiencing hell because that's what you get when you put those things together the physical suffering the darkness the wrath of God being poured out upon you Jesus experienced hell on that cross to an infinite measure so that sinners like you and I could escape it. And that is why he recoiled. That is why he was in such anguish. That is why it was such a shock to him. That is why it was so heavy upon him. Because none of us could imagine what he was going to endure. Now just think of this. What must the cross have been like for Jesus, that even the thought of it caused such shock, such heaviness, such anguish, so that Luke tells us, he actually sweat drops of blood, such was the pressure upon him. If that's what the thought of the cross was, what was it to experience it? Absolutely shocked. Now, as we think of the great anguish of Jesus here in Gethsemane, as we think of this heartfelt prayer here, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. How do you think this prayer, how do you think this plea was felt by his father how did the father feel as his beloved son was making this cry to him for those who are parents how would such a plea from your child to be delivered from something make you feel now remember this the father's love for jesus is far greater than any love any parent we have for our children. The Father's love for Jesus was infinite. It was beyond measure. So how did he feel as his perfect Son who pleased him constantly as he said those tender words, Abba, Father, take this cup from me. The one thing we can be sure of is that if there was any way that the Father could deliver his Son from the cross, from the cup of wrath, if there's any way the Father could deliver his Son from that, and for us still to be saved, he would have done it. He would have found that way. And that the fact that the Father does not deliver his Son, It reminds us that the only way we can ever get to heaven is through the cross. Through Jesus' experience, that physical pain, that darkness, that wrath upon his soul and his body. The son submitted to the father's plan because the cross was the only way of salvation. So here we have the distress of Jesus. Let me assure you, this is the longest point uh, tonight. Let's think exactly then of the failure of the disciples in verses 37 to 41. Now when Jesus began to be overwhelmed with sorrow here in Gethsemane, Peter, James and John were with him and they heard him speak He told them about the anguish he was beginning to experience. So Peter, James, and John had some insight into the fact that Jesus was going through a terrible, terrible experience. They would never have seen Jesus like this before. But what was their response? Look at verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said... To Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? When Jesus needed them most sadly, they so badly failed him. When Jesus wanted his friends just to watch and to pray with him, they fell asleep. They went and they snoozed on the job. They were, it appears, quite indifferent to all that he was experiencing and they failed to stand by him. Simon Peter of these three closest disciples to Jesus, he's the one who's singled out here by Jesus for particular rebuke. Why? I thought because it was Mark's gospel that Mark is believed to write his gospel, particularly with Peter's help. And was that why it is put in here? But Matthew has it as well. But the interesting thing about Mark's gospel is, in Mark's gospel, it quotes that he said, Simon, which was Jesus' name before he was called to be a disciple, which really was a term of rebuke. In other words, you're not being my disciple. You're like the person you were before. Why is Simon Peter particularly being picked on here? Well, probably it was because a short time before this, when Jesus spoke of Peter betray- of denying him, Peter said he wouldn't do this. Peter said he would die for Jesus. He would be faithful even unto death. And even this act of praying with Jesus, he's failed to do it. And Jesus is pointing out to Simon Peter that he's wanting those who talk the talk to walk the walk. It's not enough, Peter, you've been able to use big words and fine-sounding words of what you will do. When push comes the shove, you haven't been faithful. Jesus was laboring in Gethsemane in prayer so as to have strength to complete this work of salvation, the salvation of people's souls, and his disciples to fail to pray alongside him in this work of salvation. And surely that's the same danger today. Christ is laboring for the salvation of people's souls. And the challenge, Christian, for you and I is, are we watching are we praying? Are we alert? Or are we asleep on the job? At our little cafe this morning here, the question was asked, why is there no revival today? We were talking about the subject of revival. And the question was asked, why isn't there revival today? My dear friend who's gone to glory now, Noel, it knew used to say, William, Christians don't want revival. Christians aren't hungry to pray for revival. You see a wee picture up there of two ladies, Peggy and Christine Smith, who on the island of Lewis in 1949 were ladies in their 80s. One of them was blind. The other one was crippled with arthritis. And they were praying for God to move. In the church, their local church in Barbus, there were no young people who attended church at all. And they prayed and prayed, and they were very close to the Lord. And they felt the Lord was telling them that there was going to be a revival, there was going to be a time when the church would be full of young people again. And they spoke to their minister. And they told their minister that they were going to commit themselves two nights a week from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m. to pray for revival. And they asked the minister to challenge the office bearers in the church to do likewise. And they took up the challenge. Two evenings a week, starting at 10 p.m., five hours of prayer. This is serious business. They were not asleep. They were standing beside their Savior. They were praying for his work of salvation in people's lives to happen. And you know, if our Christianity doesn't have regular prayer at the very heart of it, including attending prayer meetings regularly, we have to ask ourselves, is it biblical Christianity at all? Because you look at Acts 2. The believers devoted themselves to prayer. That was the public gatherings of prayer. But why is it? Why is it we so often fail in this place of prayer? Why is it we want to do it, we know we should do it, but we let the Lord down Why did Peter, James, and John mess it up here? Well, we don't have to speculate. Look at verse 38. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now, there are two things there that are mentioned, two things which will pull the Christian away from the place of prayer first of all, Jesus talks about temptation. This is the work of the devil. And I believe in Gethsemane, and the reason why these disciples, and I don't think we should be too hard on them, the reason why, indeed, I believe they were so tired and couldn't do it, there was a tremendous sense of the presence of Satan working in that situation. There's no doubt that every aspect of of this final day as Jesus heads the cross, the devil was so, so active. And so the devil was working to keep these men away from prayer. And the devil continues to do that. He will throw up 101 excuses. You know, when you go to pray and you pray and suddenly it flashes in your head, 101 jobs, you know that you need to be doing. We need a real determination. It's like Jesus, he wasn't even going to avoid Gethsemane, even though it meant him being arrested. We need that sort of determination. We're not going to let the devil distract us from private prayer and praying with God's people. So temptation from Satan is the first thing. The second thing, the flesh is weak, he says here. It's a sin within us. We're, we're corrupted. And because part of that corruption of sin it naturally causes us to be self-reliant. And a self-reliant person will not be God-reliant, will not be a truly prayerful person. So sin within us always works to prevent us to pray. Now, if we are going to be people of prayer, these are the two great enemies we need to overcome. The temptation of Satan... And the weakness of the flesh the weakness of the sin that's within us but how do we overcome these two enemies we look at verse 38 again what does jesus say watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation so the answer is watch and pray now watch means being alert Watch means being aware of the schemes of the devil. It's being aware of our own sin, our own weakness, the temptations that even come from within us. It's being aware of this, that there's going to be these distractions, and we need to recognize them when they come upon us. So watch for the schemes of the devil and the calling of the sin within us, which wants to keep us away from the place of prayer. We have to watch and fight against that. And then we need to pray. How do we become people of prayer? How can we find help to be people of prayer? We need to pray that God will help us. We need to pray that God will give us strength. In Gethsemane, as Jesus prayed, after a period of time, we read in Luke's gospel that he was strengthened by an angel. And then he prayed With more distress, he prayed in more earnest. So his praying led to his strengthening, which led to more praying. So that's what we need to do. Watch the temptations and pray for that strength, that grace, that help, so we will be people of prayer. When you come to pray and you don't feel like praying, When you come to pray and don't feel like it, be honest with the Lord. Don't go through a form of ritual. Say, Lord, you know, I'm distracted here. I'm struggling here. Lord, grace, help me. Give me the strength. Help me to have the the faith to see the importance of this. Some of you maybe know Chuck Ebron, a big black American, ex-American footballer who's an evangelist. Certainly worked at one time in the Craig Alvin area. And you know, Chuck Ebron used to say, and he, you think the Irish are mad, he used to say, do You see those times when you know, I don't want to pray. Those are the times I want to pray. I'm surely you know the truth of what he means. It's often those times when there's a resistance. Often that's the time when God is going to do something. I know myself, I'm sure my colleagues feel there's times when you're preaching and you feel as if there's a real force working against you. It's a real battle. You know, those are the times when I get encouraged because if the enemy has been busy, it's because God's at work. But what about these disciples? They were told to watch and pray to help them to do this. Did they learn their lesson? Sadly not. Look at verse 40. And again he came and found them sleeping verse 41 and he came the third time and said to them are you still sleeping and taking your rest they didn't listen to what jesus is saying now i believe as every preacher does that this message tonight is not from me this message is from the lord and this is a challenge in gethsemane as we see jesus facing the cross Going to the place of prayer. This is a challenge for us to be in the place of prayer. Are we going to listen? Are we going to resolve to do something about our lack of prayer? Privately and publicly. We need to do something about it. So we see the failure of the disciples. And then thirdly, we see the readiness of Jesus in verses 41 to 42. Let me read those verses. And he came the third time and said, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It's enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. I think this is tremendous. Jesus, because of his faithfulness in prayer, is now ready to take the next dreadful step as he journeys to the cross. Jesus was prepared. Jesus was strengthened. Jesus was equipped for what was ahead from being in this place of prayer. In many ways, the battle of Calvary was won here in Gethsemane. In the place of prayer, Jesus was victorious. If you look at the story of Jesus' rest, which I was looking at last night in St. Columbanel's, and the thing that hit me, in a fresh way, as look looking at Matthew's account and John's account particularly. There's a tremendous sense of Jesus being in control. Jesus full of love and peace as he meets this great mob coming against him. You think of Judas, and as I was saying last night, you know, if I had been in Jesus' place and I knew what Judas was about to do, now, I was never a good fighter, but if that would be me, I'd like to have laid one on him, to be honest, wouldn't you? Just as he goes to kiss you, you just wouldn't like to give him a good right out And that. What does Jesus do? He says to him, friend, do what you've come to do. There's such a, a love, even to that traitor. And do what you've come to do. If you read that account and John's account... They couldn't lay a finger on him until really he had given them permission. And in John's account, when they fall back because he says that he is the great I am, he basically has to plead to them, get on with it. He has to encourage them to get on with it because he's the one who's in control. He's at peace. He's full of love. He's in control because he was in this place of prayer. Isn't that wonderful? By contrast, the disciples who failed in the place of prayer, were they ready for what's ahead? We have Peter beginning to use the sword, totally going against God's will in the way he was trying to fight the battle, and then Peter and the rest of them run for their lives. Because they'd failed in the place of prayer, They were weak when the battle came. How many times do you and I fail to stand for Christ? How many times have we missed opportunities to speak and to shine for Jesus because we had neglected the place of prayer? And I'm talking about real prayer, engaging with the Lord, resting with the Lord, pleading for his grace, his power, his strength. How many times have we failed because we have skipped the place of prayer? Let us finish by going back to the island of Lewis, 1949. Duncan Campbell, when he came to the island of Lewis in response to the prayers of those two ladies, The first night he was there in Lewis, they had a a service started at 9 p.m. It went on to 10.45. Quite a crowd, but nothing exceptional happened. The church building was emptied. And Duncan Campbell, along with a young believer, were left in the meeting house. This young believer was a man of faith, and he says, you know, to Duncan Campbell, I believe the wings of the Spirit are just hovering over this place about ready to come down. So he and Duncan Campbell got down to praying together. When they finished praying, they had a great sense of God had come down among them. They left the building, and they went outside to find the place was alive. There was a far greater crowd than even had been at the service. And this is after 11 o'clock at night. The people thronged back into that church building. Including a 100 young people who had been at a nearby dance. They thronged in. And Duncan Campbell had to make his way to the puppet. They were on the in the pews or in the aisles or on the pulpit steps. He had to clamber through these young people, remember Peggy and Christine's vision, and got up into the pulpit. At different times, he had to stop his preaching because people were pleading for mercy and making so much noise. The sense of God had come upon them. The service finished at 4 a.m., that's not the end of the story. Duncan Campbell was about to go home. I'm sure a tired man ready for bed. He said, listen, Mr. Campbell, you can't go home. Down at the police station, there's another crowd of 300 people seeking the Lord. You need to go to help them. He went down to the police station. And this crowd of 300, he couldn't preach them. Why? Because there was such anguish, such pleading to God for mercy. He had to go around quietly, talk to them. And many that night were converted at the beginning of that revival. And out of the people who had been in the church building and the people who had been at the police station, nine men, young men, ended up going in to the ministry. How did it start? Duncan Campbell and that young fellow praying together in the meeting house. God moves in power when God's people are serious about prayer and do you know what a hockle needs a hockle doesn't need what Christians can do a hockle needs what God alone can do coming in power and that will happen when Christians stop playing games and are serious to watch and to pray privately and together with God's people. Do you know that when the revival was here in 1859, most Weeks in a and it was nowhere near the size of it is now, there were no housing estates in those days. Most Weeks in a Ahokal, there were 1,000 people at the prayer meetings. 1,000 people at the prayer meetings. Let us be serious. Let us learn from our Savior tonight who won the battle in the place of prayer. And he says to you and to me, as he said to Peter, James, and John all those years ago, my dear children, will you with me watch and pray? We're going to come to prayer now. And I just want to say we'll be taking on what we've been thinking about, but just want to mention one thing in regards to prayer. In Delhi, in India, where Aisha are working, just over this past week, there, for some reason, Bulldozers went into one of the slum areas and flattened so many of the houses just to clear them. There was no warning. And this was all people's homes and possessions and so many families who have been left with absolutely nothing. People who had already lost much in floods, now they've been lost so much. So we want to pray for that. We want to pray for these people. We want to pray for Aisha as they work in that situation as well as what we'll be thinking about here. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, we want to praise you for Gethsemane. We want to praise you for the glorious victory that Jesus won there in the place of prayer. And Father, we realize it wasn't easy. He was in sorrow. He was in shock. He was in anguish. He was sweating those drops of blood. And yet, Father, It began with a sense of looking to the cross and it ended with this prayer for grace and strength to go through with the cross. And Father, we thank you that out of that time of prayer, he rose strong to face the enemy. Oh, Father, teach us to be people of prayer. Father, we realize we have a terrible enemy who will do everything to distract us and throw up 101 excuses for not doing what you call us to do and not being in prayer in our homes or at our gatherings in church. Lord, resolve in every believer here tonight a new resolution to be devoted to the place of prayer, to follow in the footsteps of our Savior who gave his all. Father, and as we think of the cross and we think of how there is no way that this could be avoided. Oh, Father, is the only way of salvation for any who are not right with Christ, even this night. Draw them to that faith in Jesus. Oh, Lord, we pray for a huckle. Father, we pray for revival. We think of the, the worldliness. We think of the godlessness. We think of the unrighteousness all around us. Even sometimes, Father, in our own churches, in our own lives, we have to confess. Forgive us, Father. Come in power. Come in revival grace. Come and make yourself known. Come, Father, for the glory of Christ. Come in mercy for sinful souls. Come. Just apply that salvation that Jesus has died to bring. And Lord, make us these people of prayer. Father, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Strengthen, Father, our weak hearts. Give us that grace to be faithful. And Father, we want to pray for that terrible situation out in Delhi. Lord, we cannot imagine these dear people just having everything that belongs to them, Father, just being bulldozed, all their possessions and their homes being just put to the ground. Lord, we pray for Dr. Kieran, and we pray for all the folk in Asha as they respond. Oh, Lord, just give them the, the provisions, give them the grace, give them the wisdom as they act in this situation. Father, out of that which the devil has meant for harm, Bring good for time and eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.